City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Performance Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in the 26th year, coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a wonderful opportunity to explore with the professionals the realities of working in the theatre. Today's seminar is devoted to performers. We will learn something about how they became professionals, what their work ethics are, and there are reasons for remaining in the theater. We hope that you will enjoy and learn from today's experience. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theater Wing. And so now, let me introduce our moderators for this seminar, a distinguished member of the theatrical community and president of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization and a member of the Board of Directors of the American Theater Wing, Theodore Chapin. Ted, would you now start? It is my distinct pleasure to introduce this uh, distinguished and I think terribly serious panel. <laughs> uh, starting at my right, Boyd Gaines, a two-time Tony winner for the Heidi Chronicles and She Loves Me. He's currently dancing in contact at Lincoln Center Theater. Well, sort of. Well, you could, you could tell us. He has appeared on television and in films and recently in the roundabout theater productions of Cabaret and Company. Next, Marin Maisie currently the object of Brian Stokes Mitchell's affections as Lily in the new Broadway production of Kiss Me, Kate. She created the roles of Mother in Ragtime and Clara in Stephen Sondheim and James Lapine's Passion. Tom Wopat, currently battling it out with Bernadette Peters in the new Broadway production of Irving Berlin's Annie Get Your Gun. Known to television audiences as Luke in the Dukes of Hazard, he has never <coughs> ventured too far from the musical theater, appearing on Broadway in I Love My Wife, City of Angels, and Guys and Dolls. Deborah Yates wears the yellow dress in the current Lincoln Center Theater production of Contact. She has been a Radio City musical Rockette, danced in the Broadway production of Dream, and appeared in the Encores production of Siegfeld Follies of 1936. Brian Batt doesn't seem to be able to leave the Minskoff Theater, where he is playing <laughs> his fourth consecutive role, this time as Monty the DJ in Saturday Night Fever. He originated the role of Darius in Paul Rudnick's Jeffrey and has skewered the best as a member of the cast of various versions of Forbidden Broadway. <laughs> Kristen Chenoweth, a Tony winner for her remarkably accurate portrayal of a four-year-old in Europe with man Charlie Brown, is currently starring in Epic Proportions. Her credits range from the color tour role of Cunegonde in Candide to her ferocious nurse in Bill Finn's A New Brain. Welcome, thank you for being here. Um, I want to address the first question to Marin because she started previews three days ago, had a two-show day yesterday, and I am very impressed, and I thank you for being <laughs> here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. Look at the bags under my eyes. <laughs> my spies tell me things are going pretty well, but I want to know, how is it going? It's going really well. We're having so much fun. It's such a fun show, and uh, we've 
the whole rehearsal process has just been, I mean, a joy, one of the most joyous things that I've ever been involved with. And I think it has to do with the fact that the show is really fun, uh, the first revival in 50 years, which we're all really excited about. And uh, Michael Blakemore, an amazing director, sort of heading the whole company and uh, just sort of setting the tone of, of fun and a, a great, great working atmosphere of ex exploration. And Brian Stokes and I are having a great time together, too. And the whole company's great. Have the audiences uh, taught you any, given you any surprises? I think what what is what is wonderful is that there, because the the book is uh, you know, we're doing the basically the original book, which was written in in forty eight forty seven, and um, the the jokes, the kind of silly fun jokes, they're loving. They're really, I, and I, I think we weren't sure that that was that we thought there were going to be snickers. People are howling, you know, so that's great. And the the music, of course, is. All the numbers are, are just getting huge, huge response. So it's it's really fun. That's great. Well, what, has there been adaptation done for the book? Or a little bit, okay. a little bit in the second act, <laughs> just a little. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, you you just opened the show. That yes, previewed for a while. Previewed for about almost a month. Yes. What did the preview audiences teach you? Mug. They they. They, um, they basically taught me to trust your work, um, and the audiences, in, especially for this show, um, they love the show, they love the music, and believe it or not, they jump to their feet at the end of every performance and dance in the <laughs> aisles, which is a first. I've never seen that happen at the Men's Golf Theater before. <laughs> um, but the preview audiences are pretty much the same as the regular after opening night audiences, um, but I had no idea that they were going to laugh at me as much as they do, <laughs> not with me. But um, it's, it's, it's really a fun show, and the, and the audience have a great time, but they're no different than the regular, you know, after opening audiences. Well, they teach you when to, when to hold for a laugh, right. you know, and um, in previews you can go for, push, it, push the envelope a little more when the director's not there. <laughs> <laughs> That was but yesterday's seminar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, definitely they teach you, you know, what to do, where to pause, where to, you know, you have to feel what, what they're giving you because they're the, the most important character in the play. Okay. And Kristen, in Epic Proportions, you cut out the intermission in previews, yes? Yeah, we learned that uh, our show is only 85 minutes long now without the intermission. And we learned that once you take an intermission in such a broad comedy as Epic Proportions, it's really work to get them back. You know, you take a break, and then you come back where you left off, and we just didn't need it, so we cut it out, and it ended up really, uh, I think it makes for a better evening. I mean, you're in and out in 85 minutes. You've had a great, fun time, and we just learned that we didn't need it, so we, we took it out, and that, and that made f me for a 12-second costume change, so that was probably <laughs> the hardest thing about it for me. Oh, but actors can do anything. Act, yeah, <laughs> and dressers. <laughs> I think I was probably part of um, what I can say charitably was probably the worst preview audience of contact since I was there with Thunder's Night. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh always fun. But, <laughs> judged. but they were pretty, uh, un except for that night, they were pretty cheerful, weren't they, boys? You mean preview audiences? Yeah. Um, yes, uh, actually, the, um, because uh, unlike all the other shows, the contact is in a subscription house. It's in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and the subscription audiences tend to be elderly. Um, and that sometimes is, um, uh, uh, can be uh, a cause of dis 
well, it's like some consternation if you're performing on a, you know, a show that gets a lot of laughs. Uh, the, um, often the elderly audiences don't laugh very much. But this show is, is unusual in as much as um, uh, it seems to appeal to a fairly wide range of, mm -hmm. uh, of audiences. And, but but the individual response every night is, is wildly different. I mean, some nights they go crazy, they howl, they laugh at everything. Uh, sometimes they'll laugh at one piece and not another. Um, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes they're very quiet through the through the whole piece, and then are you know wildly responsive at the very end. So it's been, it's 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 never quite the same. I don't think I've ever done a show that's had as as uh, big a difference in response mm. from night to night. Mm. The the funders nights, yeah, those were by <laughs> far <laughs> <laughs> the dullest crowds I've had, but they tend to be. I mean, it tends to be uh, you know in institutional theaters you have. Um, patrons who pay lots of money, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if they have a, an odd expectation or just that they're too rich to, to laugh. It must be unnerving to, to a, a performer, at least in the beginning, to think, is, am I suddenly doing it all wrong? It, it can be. Those nights aren't so bad because you, they, uh, Bernie Gerson graciously Bernie. warned us <laughs> that, yeah. that, and he said that they tend to be quiet. and, and um, so we were ex expecting it, and I think by the time we got to most of them, we'd been doing the show for a few weeks, so we'd already experienced the ups and downs of different uh, audiences. Um, and also, it's an esoteric piece. It isn't, um, I mean, it doesn't, uh, it's not designed for um, big applause, at least, and especially the piece that Deb and I do, the, the last one, Contact, isn't, uh, is, isn't designed for uh, big yucks or for... Uh, for a big applause at the end of numbers, the n numbers tend to yeah. meld one into the next. Um, so I think by the time we got to those, we were you know, fairly well prepared and mm -hmm. were able to just keep playing through. That, it, 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 it can be, though, um, I think, especially if you've had a really raucous crowd mm -hmm. the night before, or if you've made like big breakthroughs, the next day you tend to have a, a bit of a... Has, has there been day. any difference in the audiences ever since, since the reviews sort of told the people what it is. <laughs> Told them it was a hit. Well, there's some truth to that, actually. Um, I do think people, they come with high expectations, which actually can work against you sometimes. Sometimes people have built up in their mind what they think they're going to see, and then the show might be different than what they've built up in their heads. But I think this show, people do come expecting to laugh and to, to be moved, and <clears throat> hopefully they are. I mean, I think certainly... Um, we're very privileged to be a part of this show because I think it is a very special experience. And I do think since the reviews have come out, the audiences have been more vocal. Um, they maybe that's the difference between a preview audience and a, a, a audience that you have once you're open. But um, they are more vocal now. They're more likely to laugh loudly and they're more likely to applaud because we don't have applause moments built into the show, as Boyd was saying. You know, there aren't any moments where you're supposed to laugh here and you're supposed to applaud here and the audience sort of feels obligated to do that. It's not built into the show. So it can surprise you, actually. I mean, I definitely have had moments when the audience laughs at something that you're not expecting them to laugh at or <laughs> applauds at a moment when we weren't expecting that. In, in fact, sometimes we do have to hold dialogue or you, you're, it's, you're used to the momentum going along at a certain pace and all of a sudden you're like, wow, there's, there's people out there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but the magic of our show is that I think we get so caught up in the experience of being in, in contact, at least in, in the club itself, there's a, there's a certain energy that comes about and you sort of 
you don't forget about the audience because you d there's definitely a give and take between the audience and the performers. But I think we get so wrapped up in the experience of the show itself that regardless of whether they're vocal and applauding or laughing, um, the experience for, m for me and with Boyd and with the other members is just as rich every night, whether the audience is enthusiastic or very quiet. And um, I think we give the same performance regardless of the audience response. Well, your audience is right on top of you, aren't they? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very on I top mean, of I mean, you us. can't yeah. miss them. Literally. Whereas, as opposed to a proscenium stage where, yeah. you know, pretty much you're blinded by the, the light out front. Yeah. Do, you, do you have that experience? I mean, do you... Do you we have a couple of occasions in our show where we have the shooting matches between right. Bernadette mm -hmm. and I. And uh, those, it's lit so hot on stage, I can see about halfway back. Really? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Wow. But Same. most of the time, you can't see out Same. there very much at all. Mm. Yeah. I'm so guilty, I hate to say this, but I can see the audience mm. totally see their I faces. I like to look at the audience. I do too, and it's and it, it it's great when they're having a great time, and sometimes when you look at them and... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's when it's <laughs> you not have good. Well, well, you get somebody sleeping in the front row. Yeah. Oh, that that's happens. That's that. <laughs> I, uh, my character talks to the audience. I mean, that's I totally great. That's interact, fun. and I'm always like, okay, you need to wake up. <laughs> get your feet off the stage. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I, can yeah. I can do that. I can do that. But it is disheartening to look out and see someone maybe sleeping or, or yeah. you know, smacking their gum, smacking, smacking their, their gum, gum. Or whatever. A big nun, right when they walk in, <laughs> taking the gum from the people coming in. We're, we're giving a certain liberty as well, since yeah. in our show, you know, basically it's supposed to be a show within a show. a show. Right. Sure. Mm -hmm. So we're supposedly portraying these characters. So you can really relate to the audience, in, at least in some way. If you Bernadette doesn't catch me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you also went out of town with Annie Get Your Gun, something which doesn't happen very, very much these days. Well, we tried it out down in Washington, D.C., and they made a few million down there, and that big old house. I think that might have been what it was about. We talked first about going to Seattle, and they thought that the expense of going there for the size house it was really didn't make sense. And we had a lot of tightening up to do in D.C., and we cut about 15 minutes off the show. Were you in the Opera House or in the Yeah, Horizon? Opera House, 3,000 seats. Wow. Mm, that's big. Yo! That's big. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's big. But it was, it was fun. It's been a blast from the beginning. It's been a lot of fun. Since you're talking about audience, what do you bring? What, and where does it come from on how to react to the different audiences that you're getting? Because that, that's constant. It isn't only a preview or a, a ticket buying. It's, it's an audience, and, and that makes the difference between being a mm -hmm. professional and either overcoming or bringing them forth. Where, where does that come from? You're talking about technique? The technique or uh, experience. How did you get that? How do you know when to tighten up or to let I, go or I, to pull? I think, I don't, I, yeah, instinct or yeah. The, the audience, like, like Brian said, the audience is, you know, really part of the show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's all about listening. I mean, you have to be listening to your, to your fellow actors. I mean, I think that's one of the most important things is to really listen on stage um, as an actor, to really be present and really hear and be, you know, being, whatever, acting is reacting or being, what is it, one of those acting <laughs> 101 <laughs> things? Yeah. Or something. most of them. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, all sort of, it's all sort of true in that sense of just truly listening and, and listening to your audience because they tell you. Um, mm. That's what we're sort of learning now because, I mean, we've only done three shows, so we're still <laughs> not really sure, sure. Where, where a lot of the laughs are. We're still, we're still finding our way where the scenes... And it is going to vary night to night, certainly. Mm -hmm. It always does. But, you know, certain things that you can, you can hopefully depend on, oh, this is going to land or that 
this will probably get a laugh or that sort of thing. But I think that just comes from. I think that's really the important thing: is listening, listening to audiences yeah. as well as to your that's actors. actors are there. Mm -hmm. so it's, it's so true. You get you get as as good as you give mm -hmm. on stage. I do believe you know. Yes. There are some people that. It's it's about them, and it's it's you know when they're performing, and it's really not. It's it's about the entire uh, cast and right. the audience right. together right. having this unique experience. experience. It's not it's not just one person. It's the entire company. The, I think the if, scene. A, if a show really works, it'll work with a bunch of different audiences. Yes, mm -hmm. definitely. In yeah. that you know, if your scene really carries, you can keep it pretty tight without any reaction from the audience, and it will land. You know, the <laughs> the the point of the scene will land. If they're going to respond to every little thing that you have, that's great. You can give them a little opening there. But it, I think that a show that is uh, well constructed will withstand about any audience. Definitely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you ever have the tendency, though, in one performance where something isn't quite going the way it used to go, where you'd want to like do a little more or <laughs> overcompensate, or you try to? I go faster. Yeah. You're not getting the reactions. It's like there's nothing to wait for. No. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive that truck. Don't wait. Don't wait. Exactly. Faster, louder, funnier. Those are also as a non-actor. Those are the moments where I think my heart goes out. You wish we'd go faster too. Well, mostly for the non-actors. I think what Tom is saying is exactly right. That if the work has been done well, with the exception of, I suppose, maybe some kind of burlesque where you have obvious setups for laughs that demand, you know, I mean, a joke that demands a laugh. Right. Basically, if it's Done well and played honestly. Whether it's something gets a laugh or not, the moment still plays. Yes. You just right. keep going. It's yeah. just you know you don't. Have, there's nothing to wait for. You just play. Because audiences through. do vary, and They're and as far time. as what Boyd's saying, elderly audience. I mean, you're sometimes your matinee. Like yesterday we had a matinee audience. I mean, typical more elderly people. Right. They loved it. They mm -hmm. loved it. But they and they're listening. Right. You know they're listening. They enjoy they're it. They're enjoying but they're not it. Vocal. But they're that's not. Right. Blah, they're it's not. It's the audience. That's yeah. what makes it more fun than doing a sitcom. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the sitcoms, oh, geez. You listen, and it's mostly the producers and the writers that are laughing at every joke. <laughs> that, is the, that is the hottest laughter in the world. It's very it? forced. Very, very forced. forced. <laughs> and then they can always add it later. If they oh, yeah. 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 In defense of the elderly audience, I will say, I can't believe it, but at our show, <laughs> they're loving it. It's our corporate audience, the buyouts. When did the movie come out? 70 Seventy seven. Seventy seven. Well, the defense rest. There you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I think, I think the, the older audiences are a little more experienced at theater going. Yes, yeah. that's, that's true. true. So yeah. it's more, they, are, they come ready to be gratified. Yes. Right. You know? right. And yeah. I think they really open themselves up to it more than, than our generation or the younger generation who's, you know, they're used to video games and mm -hmm. all this input Immediate. all the time, MTV stuff. Mm -hmm. And theater doesn't isn't quite as relevant to a lot of people. It's a lot more work. Yeah, and it's always it's always great to see younger people in the theater and see them enjoy a show. But you know, the older audiences they're they're a little more open to it. I think. Yeah, they were raised. I think the interesting thing is that you're dancing and you're known as an actor. Well, I did, and I still won't answer that question. How does it differ for you? And, and you are a dancer, and you're now acting. Tell me about that. How did that come about, and, and, and how much training did you have to bring to each part of this, to the different things that you're doing now? I've watched you 
lo these many years. <laughs> well, I think we were very fortunate working with Susan Stroman, who is director and choreographer of this piece. And certainly she tailored both these pieces, these roles, to us. They were created on us, and so they really use our strengths um, to the best advantage. And, of course, a lot of rehearsal <laughs> for both of background? us. My background is primarily dance. I've been dancing since I Where? was five years old. I grew up in Texas, mm -hmm. and I studied in Texas, and I studied in London, and I studied in Chicago and here in New York. And, um, but I think the thing that's very interesting about Contact and that Susan brought to this piece is that there really is no separation between the dancing and the acting. It's not like some musical numbers uh, where you, you go and you do a tap dance and then you do a scene and then you do a little ballet over here and then you do a scene. There's not dancing and acting. You're actually, both are two completely married at every moment. And so every movement has a reason. And so there's n when you're, you're dancing, actually what you're doing is acting with your body. And in the same sense, when you're doing a scene, it's in a sense you're dancing with your, with your words. And so um, I think Boyd and I actually really were able to use each other in that sense because I learned from his experience acting and he hopefully could draw on my experience as a dancer. And it's partner dancing, you know, that this is not, you know, disco dancing. There's a very big difference in the two. And <laughs> <laughs> no, it's but, 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 but there is. And very well. I don't, I don't. I just but, don't but in partner dancing, there is a big difference because you have to learn how to really sense each other's energy and movement and respond to very subtle cues from one another. And I think actually that that's um, a big advantage. It's sort of what Marin was saying, that it, it's the same thing as really listening. You're listening with your body. And it's the same thing that you do as an actor. You truly tune into your partner and pay attention to what's going on. Did that come on. about through rehearsals? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I wanted to talk about, about no. contact because it, uh, Boyd mentions this, it's at an institutional theater, which has a mm -hmm. built-in audience. But it also, I believe that this show was an idea and that Andre just said to Susan Stroman, do you have any idea? Do you want to do it? When did you get involved, both of you? How did you get involved, and at what stage? Did, did uh, Susan call and say, I want you to dance, Boyd? I got a call from my agent uh, who said um, they're doing a, uh, Susan Stroman and John Weidman are doing this workshop at uh, Lincoln Center. This was last, either late November or early December. Um, and said, uh, it's a dance workshop. Do you want to be at it? And I went, well, why are they calling me? Surely there's <laughs> some mistake. <laughs> um, <coughs> and they said no, no, no. So they sent me over, uh, sent over uh, a this. It was essentially a maybe about fifteen, sixteen page outline mm -hmm. describing the show, which ironically <coughs> is pretty much what we're doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is it, it, very little has changed. Um, it had all the the numbers, uh, all the the music rather. Uh, um, in it and the, a description of the story and some dialogue. Was it John's idea? Uh, I, it was both of them. I think Susan got the idea, sh I mean the sort of apocryphal story now is that yeah. she went to a dance club down in the Meat District, oh, some okay. swing, you know, some pool hall that became, that becomes a, a, a swing club at night, saw uh, all these people dancing and saw this woman in a yellow dress who was quite evocative and, and, and said, That's what? That's you. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. And said, wow, this, you know, Everyone, people were coming up and asking her to dance, and she was saying no, and she was sort of, you know, she was kind of the, 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 the focal point of this, uh, the, of the evening at the club. And that sort of inspired this idea about, you know, how dancing with someone could, could uh, change their lives. And, uh, uh, and then I guess when um, Andre and Bernie invited them to come do something, uh, she and John had collaborated before,
that was what they decided that they would work on. And I'm not sure how long they, that, I don't know when that happened, but by the time they wrote, that John actually wrote out the, uh, the outline, I'm going to decided to do it, and then I called. So I, Susan was in London filming Oklahoma, uh, the Trevor Nunn production, and uh, so I said, well, I think maybe I need to talk to her, because I think I, I'd met her socially, but I didn't, I'd never worked with her, and I thought, I really thought they, she thought I was someone else. Because <laughs> um, no, because the description of the character did, does have to dance at some point, and I thought, well, I'm just not a dance. I'm a dance challenged, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I, sp well, we finally did hook up, and I talked, and she said, no, no, and uh, uh, I really want an actor for the part and not a dancer. And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'll try anything, but I, I really am limited in what I can do. And she said, don't worry, you know, I'm, I'm used to working with. The dance challenge. Oh yeah, she loved it, and it was. I mean, it was a. It was. I mean, I keep. I've said this before, but I think it's really. I mean, you can imagine if Joe Torre called you and said, "You like baseball? Well, yeah. Do you play baseball? Well, no, not really, but." Okay, but would you like to come work out with the Yankees? I, you know, you'd say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I have to say that because I w worked with Susan on Oklahoma, she invited me. That call came to the office. Come this thing called contact. I thought I have no idea what this even means, you know. And down into the bowels of Lincoln Center, into a <laughs> rehearsal room, or I was sitting in the front row, and this yeah. thing—it was just the third piece that you're both in. Right. And I was absolutely overwhelmed by it. I had no, absolutely no idea what it was. Um, you know, you came on in a yellow dress, and I thought, this is one of the sexiest things I've seen. And then, uh, you know, when you're in the front row in a rehearsal room, as in the theater, mm. your legs are going over your... Yeah. <laughs> but really uh, in a way, I thought to myself, this is something that can be created by a place like Lincoln Center and nowhere else, because mm -hmm. it really... Nobody right. was saying, now we got, you know, it's got to be a theater party on this day. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is a, it, that's a really important thing. Well, it's been through those space. backers' performances well, exactly. a week into rehearsal. Right. Right. It's, it, it's been really unusual in that... Um, uh, it's the the least interfered with show I think I've ever been in. Mm -hmm. so, um, we w we mm -hmm. went. It's gotta be nice. Uh, uh, yeah. We went into these rehearsals. Um, um, I remember Andre and Bernie came and said hello the first day, um, and then we didn't see them for weeks. They'd just come in and sort of go like, oh, we just that looks very interesting. The kids were playing. That's right. That's exactly what it was like. They, they, they did not come and exactly. they did not watch run-throughs. They did not watch it. They came actually right at the end when we were doing it. And then they loved it. And then the m most amazing thing is that they had the guts to then say, we want to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, 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 people would say, what are you doing? I'm going, I'm doing this really weird dance thing <laughs> down in the basement at Lincoln Center, but and I'm having a, we're having a ball. But it's also interesting, and this is not what we're here to talk about, but I think it's the best use of canned music I've ever seen. And yeah. now that it has become a hit, and now that it may, it was going to move upstairs, suddenly there's a question about, <coughs> Do you want a whatever this is? Call it a musical, call it whatever with canned music, and it's it's. I mean, it's, it's not. Done, it, it's part it's of a soundtrack to. I mean, it, it, it was I, part of the concept. It's really part of the concept. Yeah. Was, was always that it was. Uh, uh, I mean, in fact, in contact in the my character's apartment, it's always been this way. The the music that you hear are all there. All those CDs are on on my desk. Yeah. So it's always been that this is char this is music that's in his mind, mm -hmm. and. I mean, you know, it's funny. Yeah, there's, we, we've heard a little flack about people saying, "Well, they should be using a live orchestra." And so, yeah. but can't be. But it's uh, not part of the concept. But yeah. it was never part of the concept, and it also too is like no one ever bitches about movie soundtracks. I mean, that's. I mean, it's essentially the same kind of 
Yeah. Thing. Well, yeah. we, we talk about lives, really. That's, that's part of it, and that's why. But it works in this. It was it part of the concept from well. the very exactly. beginning. Yeah, it was but completely that, part of the reason why and they and Susan different. And John you couldn't recreate do. that stuff. No, no, no. But it's also, you know, the, the, there is a, um, um, I mean, for example, um, if you had a moment in a play where you had, say, um, a recording of Martin Luther King's speech, that's a very specific cultural reference. Mm -hmm. Um, and to have an actor do it live, mm -hmm. that, while that could be just as effective in a certain way, is not the same choice. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just not the, you know, it's not the director's it choice. It would be the same to have an orchestra play simply irresistible. You've got to hear Robert Palmer's right. voice. Right. Right. Part right. of it is hearing that right. recognizable music. What you bring to uh, whatever happened with you when right. you first heard that that's song, right. or the, right. the emotions, that's or right. the whatever that came with it, too. Yeah, that's you bring right the piece, too, as an audience member, I guess. And yeah. the idea is that this is all happening in Boyd's head. It's a fantasy. I mean, mm. the whole evening is about fantasy. And so these are songs, he, he imagines going to a swing club and probably doesn't quite know what that means and what swing music is all about. And so he picks songs from his life. And in this fantasy, he picks songs from his life that were meaningful. And I do think that's why these songs are important, because they, like he said, they're the cultural events. They're the songs with those artists performing them. And eventually, he gets around to sing, 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 thank goodness. <laughs> but, <laughs> but meanwhile, we go through Beyond the Sea and Robert Palmer. And, and I think that's what makes it unique. Yeah. <laughs> but, but also, the, the, those characters, as you said earlier, they're really, they were molded around you and pulled from mm -hmm. you. That must mm -hmm. be satisfying from an actor's standpoint. What do you have, Brian? What, what kind of uh, orchestration do you have? In oh, we have a full orchestra, although they're not in the pit. They're really? um, piped in. They're mm -hmm. in another room. Mm. There's, unfortunately, you know, this is the sound they wanted. Um, but w at least for me as an actor, on stage, we have hear no live percussive or, or acoustic sound. Mm. It's all piped in, and they wanted it to sound like you were in a disco. Do you have trouble mm. hearing, like, when you're singing? Uh, like, are there monitors? <laughs> one one re rehearsal, they, they weren't getting, you know, it was a rehearsal, and uh, we have to come on with just a percussive beat, Paige and I, and um, it wasn't coming through. There was nothing piped in. We could not hear a beat. Could not hear one, two, three, four. Wow. And it was just a rehearsal, thank God everything right. got fixed. Sure. But it, it's the concept of the sound, mm -hmm. that they wanted it to sound like you were in a disco, so that everything was loud and, and piped in. Mm. All the... Um, instruments are off stage except for the uh, synthesizers, uh, bass guitar, the guitars are, are in the pit. Do you have a conductor? Oh yeah, we watch them. Every show I've been in at Minskoff and other theaters too, now we have the, um, the monitors, the TV monitors. Mm. Do you have those? No, we don't have at the, because the back is such an intimate theater that's and true. Paul you is right. You right. don't need it. And it's, the orchestra is in the pit. And that's a fabulous right. pit at the back. Yeah. It's got, I mean, we, when we did our Zitz Probe last Friday, it was so exciting because we did it acoustically, oh. the band and us. Oh, nice. And as other people were singing, w I walked up, walked up in the balcony. Sure. You could hear perfectly. Oh. You could hear every oh. word, everything. And mm -hmm. Michael Blakemore said, it would be revolutionary if we said, no mics. No, no mics. No mics. Oh. And I said, <laughs> yeah, Never I mean, happened. we were tempted to do Never it. Happened. But oh. because the audience Wouldn't had become be so used to it. Never happened. The so audience would sad. sit there and go, what, what? Or they would feel like they were being Stage engine or wouldn't something. let you do it. I you don't think know. Also yeah. because, uh, when did they start the mic in the mouth? That 60s, wasn't it? But we don't have that, but. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, no, well, they, 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 they <laughs> used floor mics. I mean, oh. a long, back yeah. in, the, in the 30s, actually. They as did. early as the 30s, yeah. they used really? it very, very preliminarily. Yes. 
little en enhancement. Mm -hmm. But um, not the body mic. No, I body don't mind mics. the little body mic where it's disguised. No, I can't stand We this. have these things. Oh, you oh the big guy. Which, you know, I hope I don't catch any flack from this or from the producers, but I found it besides not fitting your head when you have a big <laughs> wig on like I do, I have this big bad perm. It's great. I love it. It's <laughs> bad perm. It's bad perm. It's redundant. Gino Vanelli, Tony Orlando gone wrong. That's what I asked for. It's just hideous perm. It's great. Um, but when, once they put it on, and if the mic's not in the right place, forget, I mean, the sound guy's yanking and pulling, and, and otherwise, other shows, they just stick them, tape them, and you're fine. It does but look like orthodontry. It does. Yeah. I think it, it's yeah. inhibiting so for acting. I think it, like it's also so odd that. when they use it, I have to say, like in Civil War, in a period show. Yes. And you know, I went and saw this and it, with these mics, these women in these you know, big, beautiful dresses I and these so microphones. It looks alien. Ground control. David Letterman. I was not watching David right. Letterman. Do you, not have, do you, as actors, performers, not have any say in the kind no. of mic you Absolutely want to use? No. I kind of put my foot down once in a while. They keep, the sound guys kept wanting me to stick it out. Oh, more, I won't you know, put out mine out. my face to where mm -hmm. you could see it, uh -uh. and I won't do it. I won't know? either. So you just I turn it up. I'll, so see, right. I'll sing yeah. plenty I loud. Not, you I can, will not wear my mic. You can turn the damn thing off. I will not have my mic seen. That is one thing about, you know, I know people will, even the little ones that like that we wear, the body right. mics. I mean, to people me, wear them that would be a deal breaker for me. If they wanted me to wear one of those rigs, I wouldn't do the show. It's ridiculous. Well, then they'd have to deal have with to that rethink. somehow. They'd yeah. have to their <laughs> 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 I just could think it's you, important. Could all of you be heard without these mics? It depends on how the technology may have heard. There's no way you could sing over it. You couldn't hear over the amplification. But the other night I was watching Letterman, and I don't know what it's going to come to, but Leanne Rimes was on, and she had one of those mics. But this one was like this coffee cup on the in front of her face. And I was like, you can't, you're just totally cut off. Uh, did you see it? No. She had a, she's a cute, wonderful, beautiful, great. She's awesome singing. <laughs> she's 17. She's 17. <laughs> now, she should say, no, but, you know, you, when you have an amplified yeah, she orchestra. She probably chose it. I know. Well, they but, probably but say that's the best cute. sound. We'll get you the best sound. Exactly. Right. But, but when you don't, don't, I'm sorry, no. delineate from the sound. From the acting, I'm, I always say, give me the actor, you know, yeah. communicate with the audience. And I find some of those things inhibiting. Well, the most disconcerting about an, as being an audience member, for me, watching a show that's especially heavily amplified, is that, well, first of all, um, if it's not done really, really well, it's often hard to tell who the hell's talking yes. or singing. You, yes. Especially in a big choral number, someone yes. has a solo, and right. you go, rather than uh, an, un uh, in, uh, uh, an acoustic situation where you simply go, Mm -hmm. oh, that person right. saying, <laughs> but this would go because the sound well, yeah. are all over. Yeah, That's, it's all around you. Uh, it's all around you. It's it's very disconcerting. And and I mean, the basic idea of theater, live theater, is that we're all in the same room and we can see each other and we can hear each other. Right. right. And therefore, um, it, there is no distance between us. But and and I think this the the trend of uh, heavy amplification. I mean, the idea before is we were talking about enhancement, mm -hmm. right? That that makes it a little more, right. a, a little easier for. Uh, to I mean, they're talking about that at Carnegie Hall and everything. Yeah, yeah. 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 That a lot of opera, opera, opera houses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Opera. Yeah. Opera. Opera. I think it's a. But uh, it, yeah, if, if the I think it's the sound guys. I think they got a whole 
little cabal going on. It's also a rock show. I, mean, I think I it is. I think it's that. I think when, it's cultural you know, that we've got a cool porn show. You know, it should be right. You know, uh, yeah. very minimal and 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 acoustic. Our show, it, it's a big rock disco. Right. Crank it up. Right. And yeah. Yeah. But th there, there is an thing. argument that in the Ethel Merman days, she sort of, you know, what you got out for volume, you missed in nuance. nuance. Right. That's true. It does. I mean, it's it, a it, different it, style it, of singing now, wouldn't you say? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, well, yeah. Can, well, it can be a lot more you intimate. You can be more intimate. You can be. Uh, that that is one thing that is I have to say it, it is is nice because you can't afford if you want to take some quiet moments you can which you probably really couldn't then but but not but I think that <laughs> also no, I that think sometimes encourages people to to discard technique mm -hmm. and it uh, does promote it and then yes. you uh, and then you hear a lot of singers out there they can't. that they can't do it really times don't know no. what they're doing they don't yeah they because they depend you can hear them they because they depend on that microphone it does yeah. promote it you know technique is really important I think um, yeah. and a lot of the I hate to say new kids because I'm, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know I I myself have a master's degree in opera and I uh, learned how to not only sing that way with technique but speak that way with technique and mm -hmm. since I'm in a play right now with no mics, I've realized um, how important support no matter no matter whether you're speaking or singing how important that support is and uh, I sang at Carnegie Hall last year without a mic. And if you truly have the technique, you and 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 of course there's the balance issue too of the orchestra. Right. So you should be able to project it. Right. You should be able to do it. Yeah. And you should be able to do it eight times a week. Yes, you'll get tired, and yes, you'll have to take care of yourself. But I do think the microphones promote a little bit of laziness. I do. Oh, Definitely. And, and also, I mean, people that <laughs> people that that. People are getting away with having no technique. People exactly. aren't studying right. because it's sort of like they don't, they don't have need to, to in right. a sense. Right. They, can, they don't have to project, <laughs> which is disconcerting. Wouldn't your directors yeah. be interested in hearing what you all say? Yeah. Oh, the they have the same they concern. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do they? Sure they yeah. Do. Because uh, this is the first time that it's been so unanimous. And, uh, I mean, we've had so many music, uh, people in musicals here. And I find it very disconcerting, and mm -hmm. I find it that I keep going back to live theater because that's that's what the theater is, and that's mm -hmm. what makes it different from your sitcoms and right. everything else. That there shouldn't be anything between the audience and you. You should communicate. Why why isn't this being very very strongly this message given to the people that had the power to I say I yay think or nay? Two two big reasons. Uh, first. Uh, is the the advent of synthesized instruments have to be amplified? Mm -hmm. They're naturally louder and they're easier for the audience to hear. They have more sort of visceral impact. Mm -hmm. If you hear, an, I mean, I'm sure when you're doing your zitz probe, as rich and luscious as the sound of what maybe 28 pieces is in a pit, um, compared to say an opera orchestra of 60 or a Philharmonic of 110, right? Um, it's not an overwhelming sound. It's actually fairly subtle if right. you're sitting in the back of the house. Um, and the audience has to pay attention. <laughs> they have to be quiet right. and they have to <laughs> concentrate. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're used to going to see Terminator 2 and uh, 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 or listening to uh, you know your 
big Dolby uh, home theater yeah. system. Or in your or car. Or in your car, car exactly right. like that, which we is a cultural phenomenon that's not going away. No. True. It and I think that we're, it's simply to go into some place and have to pay attention, concentrate, um, is something that we're not accustomed to doing. So I think that's the first part of it. And the other is just that economically, it's a lot cheaper to have a 10-piece band with right. a lot of synthesizers yeah. and amplified orchestras and you don't have a one sound or two sound people rather than pay 28 people right. to yeah. play. We don't have, we have, I think, 17. We have, you know, we have that's synth. A, yes, synth. Right. You're going yeah. yeah. to have a 2,000 seat house like the Gershwin, too. You're going to. That's right. You're going to have to have opera singers. You're going to have to have amplification. It's that's about, right. that's about cost. That's I mean, that's well, now that's about, that's true. about cost. For, it's, it's cheaper for your producer to have a synthesizer down there than 10 more players. Violins. Also, yeah. if, if you rely on amplification, you can put the orchestra as it is on Annie Get Your Gun, which is split and upstaged, right. left right. and right. You couldn't right. do I mean, if you did it acoustically, you couldn't hear it anywhere. That's in this right. Room. I see both sides of that. I, I do see the progression, although because the music, there are different kinds of music now right. in the last It would be ludicrous in, in, in your piece yes. to do it acoustically. Yeah, it would be, right. yeah, it would be yeah. nonsense. One violin, whether you're a brother, staying alive. But on the flip side, I, like, I agree totally, but I don't think that'll ever change. Mm -hmm. That as long as someone in a dark room, you turn on a light and someone starts to talk and tell a story, you know, there will always be the intimate theater. There will always right. be a desire for it. There will always be an audience for it. Um, but I think now, like you said, everyone is so overstimulated. Well, there's also, the you computer. know, there's a certain face. homogenization, I think, of the Broadway theater in that I think producers are less inclined to really say, take a piece and say, this would be good if we could do this as acoustically as possible. I think there's like a machinery that's, you know, in the production sense, mm -hmm. that's kind of right. in place. You know, you walk in, you're going to have <coughs> costumes, you're going to have sound, you're going to have, you're going to have all your stage guys that you have to have, and it's got to be dancing in, in your Broadway shows. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Is that there's a certain machinery that's in place, and the shows are kind of sometimes scooched into to fit the machinery rather right. than, the machi yeah. than the other way around, yeah. which would be Very nice. True. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but would contact be put up if it wasn't for Lincoln South? Well, that's exactly Would yeah. that have happened that's commercially? Exactly right. <laughs> it, 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 it's, uh, uh, I mean, as Ted was saying, it's just there isn't, it, 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 if someone, uh, if John and Susan had gone to commercial producers and said, we have this great idea for a show. <laughs> it's three pizzas. There's, there's almost no dialogue. It's mostly <laughs> dancing and a, lot of, and a bunch of canned music, mm -hmm. they would have said. <laughs> Can you get Rick and Morty? And of course, it, 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 even if they had chosen to produce it, it wouldn't be what we're doing. It's just right. simply the, all right. the commercial, as you say, the, the, sort of the, the, the way things are done now would have dictated, like, well, you can't do that. You have to do it this way. Right. Right. You can't do it that way. You have to mm -hmm. do it this way. That's the way it's done now. Mm -hmm. Apart, you mentioned earlier about sitcom and theater. What's your training? Where did you come? Oh, Which I came, came from, from theater. You came from theater. Yeah. Where did you I did television. Television. Actually, after I was on Broadway, I was on Broadway, and I loved my wife back in '78. Mm -hmm. And then I, I got drafted into television. It's not division. But it's paid a lot of bills right. and a lot of doors. It's um. And, uh, but the, the theater is always the, the thing that I enjoy the most, and I keep coming back to it, and it's we very gratifying. It's a blast. Brian, what about you? Oh, <laughs> I would love to be on television. I find no shame at all. No, I love it. Um, What's your background? Just theater. Theater, theater, theater. Um, I've Where done one film. 
I, I went to Tulane University in New Orleans, where I'm from. I, w I wanted to go other places. My father was very ill at the time, so I stayed home. And I studied up here. I immediately out of college ran up here and studied. But um, mainly, mainly theater and uh, one movie. So. Did you develop the, the character? Yeah. More I, so with the funny hat. Great. <laughs> Leon and, um, and Susie Benzinger, who did the costumes, she just had a field day with me. I said, w when we first met, we just clicked, and I just said, go to town, knock yourself out. The higher the platforms, the better, you know, which I regret now because sure. my knees are one month and my knees are almost shot. Yeah. They're like four-inch heels and two-inch platforms every shoe I wear, and I have to dance in them. I didn't think of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I did tell um, Leon about the wigs. I said, you know, big, huge perm, <coughs> Gino Vanelli gone wrong. Make it, you know, he's this you know, lecherous Characters, so I said, let's have fun. It's bigger than life. Oh, really. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But it, and the jewelry, I, when, I first, when I really knew who the character was, is Susie had this whole big table of fake jewelry because I said, I have to have rings on every finger and you know, chains and medallions. And I saw this huge scorpion and I went, that's it. That's, that. So my whole character is defined by a fake gold scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I went to Oklahoma. I grew up in Oklahoma. and. Uh, we are neighbors. <laughs> and I got, I got my um, undergraduate degree in music theater and uh, got my master's degree in opera performance and thought I was going to be an opera singer. I won the Met auditions um, and decided to do music theater. I auditioned for a play after I graduated and at, at, at a paper mill playhouse and um, got one of the parts and then I had to decide what are you really going to do with your life? And what do you really want to do with your life? So I decided to move to New York and stay here and do this. What was your first Broadway show? Uh, my first Broadway show was um, Steel Pier. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Charlie, uh, Charlie Brown. And now this. Where did, I have to ask you, where did that character come from in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown? <laughs> um, <laughs> She's an amalgamation of many people. Um, probably, I did a lot of uh, watching children, just random children, uh, on the streets, in the subways. Um, my niece uh, is now five. I, I studied her a lot. But, but mainly, um, I read the, the cartoon strips that Charles Schultz wrote. And one of the things that I noticed um, in, these, in these characters, and in a lot of the children, and certainly my niece that I noticed, is that they don't know that they're children. They're little adults. And so, you know, the fact that they can't jump rope, or they've got gum on the bottom of their shoe, or they want the ice cream cone now, is very, very important. It's like our banking or our opening night. I mean, it's as important to them as our things are to us. And that's the one thing that I really wanted to bring out in the characters, that they are little adults. And of course, the way Schultz wrote the material, it's very adult-like. Mm -hmm. So the important thing for me was just not to play at being a child, but just bring out the qualities um, of being a little, uh, of being very serious and um, a little adult. But mainly from my niece. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know my niece, too. <laughs> well, at, the, at, at the Tony Awards, I was sitting next to my father quite by accident, and, just, and she, he hadn't seen the show. And just before you started, I turned and I said, you're about to see a performance that is your granddaughter, Tess. <laughs> yeah. And he was on the floor. He was absolutely on the floor. It was a wonderful, Well, wonderful you know, it's, what's great, too, about, about Charlie Brown that is now carrying over into the play is um, that a lot of these kids that sort of 
enjoyed the show, Charlie Brown, are now coming to Epic Proportions. And I'm, I'm happy about that because I feel like whatever can get them into the theater, into a straight play, even if they mm -hmm. mainly love musicals or whatever, it, it's great. Um, I've had a couple of little girls very upset that they're not seeing Sally. Oh. They've come and, you know, I thought I was coming to see Sally. <laughs> <laughs> you signed my poster anyway. But um, <laughs> it's been very cute. <laughs> but I'm glad that they're there, you know, and they're having a, a theater, ex a theatrical experience. And Hopefully, uh, learning did you from did you audition for the show you're in now for Eric? No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, the director Jerry Zachs had come to me while I was doing Charlie Brown and said, "I think this character is so you." And it's funny because I had never worked with him before, and I don't know what I ever did that made him think that. But I'm glad that he did because it is uh, a lot of uh, my personality, and um, I'm lucky that I do get to communicate with the audience and. Um, I do doing. I do enjoy doing um, comedy, and uh, it's a wonderful. <laughs> it's a wonderful chance to do that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How'd you like Zach's? Um, I enjoyed him. You know, he's very uh, specific, and he knows what he wants. So he's always very clear with you, and you never have a question. But at the same time, he lets you play, like uh, you said, a wonderful exploration uh, environment. He gives that, and so therefore you're able to bring a lot of your own self to the role, and uh, the writers were on hand, so they, they sort of wrote it around me and the other people in the show, which is such a gift, and I know uh, mm -hmm. Deborah and Boyd uh, and, and Brian, you know, when you're creating something, it's a wonderful gift because they, if they're smart, mm -hmm. they, try, they pick up on your ability and your niche and your thing and they go with that and and if you're smart as the actor then you can bring other elements as well to the character so I've been lucky that I've been able to originate a lot of things you know mm -hmm. um, it's Have there been situations where that has not existed in working? Well a lot of times people think like in a, in a <laughs> revival that, that that doesn't really exist but I think in a lot of ways if a revival is going to be successful you really do have to create from scratch yeah. the character. You yeah. can't go back and look at what somebody else did with it because that's a different period. You know, if we did Annie Get Your Gun like they, with, like they did in Merman's time, it wouldn't be successful, right. probably. I mean, no. people would still come because of Bernadette, but I don't think it would have been... What is the reason for doing a revival, then? Well, in this case, I mean, and I think in her case, it's, it's the amazing great, music. Great music. I, th I think, amazing you know, music. they're... they're why do we keep doing Tosca and why do we keep do it, it's our but you're American doing it the same way though we're, we're not doing, doing we're not no, doing no 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 I mean when you say the operas are being done pretty much the same way because well, of the music well, oh, I think they mount they mount them different so much. Yeah. I've always been interested in that but I, I but I think it's because we we need to keep hearing I mean as much as I mean yes. this is the first revival I've done I've done original Broadway shows so this is is a different a different experience but how wonderful to bring this incredible music and this score to hopefully... That isn't what I meant. I meant was, why not, if you're doing that, why not do it as it had been done? Well... Because it's a, the classic. It has the music that you want to hear, and it was of a period. But also, um, I mean, we don't Saturday have... Saturday Night Fever. I, I don't, I don't see how we could... How, I don't... Who, who remembers exactly what Alfred Drake and Patricia Morrison did in, the 19, in 1948? Um, that could come and remount the production exactly as it was done. I mean, that, uh, plus, I, I think that would be 
dull and that boring. Would a, and, it would be a museum and, piece. Yeah, that yeah. would be a different historical sort of thing. I think, I think anything that, that, that is worth doing, it will stand the test of time. This yeah. score will live up, the book will live up through different interpretations, right. like that fantastic revival of um, Carousel right. and King and I. It was yeah. totally reconceived, but yet they worked for today. They had something to say today, not... Some books hold up better than others. Yeah. Well, right. Right. Some books, but I've got a song on your show. But, I, think, but, I, but I, I also think what, what Kristen is saying is, is true in revival, because if a show was written around certain actors to begin with by good people, by the very nature of what it is, it will be well done so that when somebody does that part again, it's like it's well constructed. Yes. And it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting They're to think pieces. of, you know, you look at Emile de Beck's right. lines in South Pacific, and if you say them real slow with an Italian accent, they sound, <laughs> you know, like... But the words, obviously, you know, he just... You know, but it, it's true. But I think any, I mean, it's true of any classical play, it's true of any, that you, uh, any production, um, worth its salt should be mounted as a new contemporary play. You have yes. to think of it as a new play. At right. least at least for the performer. Yeah. It's right. got in your cons it's got to be it's got to be fresh. Mm -hmm. uh, Just as you would I, I think whoever took over roles back right. then, uh, whoever took over for Merman, whoever took over for whoever, they brought what they were to that piece because we no one can be those people. You can't be no one can be Ethel Merman. No one can be Tell for Ben Broadway. I was going to say, yeah, well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Brian is the exception. We are heels. I mean, that's what makes us unique as actors. Hopefully, is what we br we bring ourselves. We bring what we have to e to to a role. Are you given any directives on that? Uh, uh, anything? Uh, this is the way it was done, but we don't want you to no. do it that way. No. This is it. And this and is complete. I mean, well, at least with Kiss Me, Kate, we've been looking at it as a completely. It's our piece. We are mm -hmm. inventing this. Is, it's a completely reinvented uh, show for, and, and not looking at any. And uh, the, the people who, who, the Eliases who had the, the Spiewak book uh, were, keep, were holding on to it, as you know, forever <laughs> and ever <laughs> and ever and ever and weren't letting anyone do it. They came to the uh, preview Monday <coughs> night and, and said to, to, to Brian Stokes and myself that, Patricia and Alfred are nowhere, and how thrilled they were wow. about that. Oh, that, th and I think for them that that because they they have been so uh, protective of yeah. the piece, and so for them to really look at it and and to be able to see it in a completely other way is wonderful, and that's why we do it. I think. Well, in our so case too, in. Um, in Annie Get Your Gun, the, the portrayal of Frank was always, he was always kind of a stiff, arrogant, <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, uh, that got away from me. Um, but in our case, what we wanted to try to do, with Ethel, it was always such a star vehicle, and when they recreated it in 66, they actually got rid of the, the ingenue couple and right. gave her another song. And so she was singing everything but Defenses Are Down. <laughs> and um, in our case, uh, I think Bernadette and Graciela and, and uh, Peter Stone, they all wanted to have a little better balance. So they gave us latitude and they, uh, my character's a little more sympathetic and a little less uh, abrasive to her. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a little less of a cat fight anymore. And it's a, it's a lot more fun to do this way, for one thing. And the people, like um, um, Berlin's daughters, have all said that they like this character much better. 
Thanks. I'll pass it on. Came to no. So how many people came to see Forbidden Broadway that you that you uh, were making fun of? Too many. <laughs> Too many. It, it was that was the most nerve wracking. Not when okay. well that and when when you know big directors and big producers were in the audience. But the w most nerve wracking is when you had to imitate and poke fun at other performers and colleagues of yours, and sometimes they, they were Gerard. Oh, I when I went to see the ragtime spoof. I was nervous. When it came <laughs> up, it started, I was sitting there completely petrified, like that I was, it was going to be, be <laughs> you know, how horrifying it was going to be for me. I just sat there, and it was hysterical. Was what did they do? What did they do? They did sort of the whole thing, and it was actually through Mother's Eyes, and it was really, really funny. Like, the little, Tata's little girl was a loaf of bread, and I mean, yeah. it was Remember, your loaf of rye. <laughs> Very, very funny. That changed so much. Every night, uh, every night, it changed until we opened. It would, things were cut. It was, it was crazy. It, that was very fun. Very funny. But it was nerve-wracking to watch. <laughs> <laughs> when it was done, I was like, okay. <laughs> well, there's a lot more that we have to explore, but we have to take a break at this point. And so you can all take a deep breath. You can all have a glass of water. You can stand up and sit down. But you have to be back in your seats in like a minute. So right now, this is <laughs> a break for down. the American Theatre Wing Seminars and working in the theatre. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before we return to our gifted panelists, I would like to point out to you that the Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Award for, given for excellence in the theatre. We are an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theatre and the community with the goal of developing new audiences. To achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students like Introduction to Broadway, which began seven years ago and has enabled almost 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, for many of them their very first time. And through our theater and school program, theater professionals like these on the, our seminar panels go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have our hospital program, which dates back to World War II and our legendary stage door canteen. Today's version of the program brings talent from Broadway, off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients, hospitals, senior nursing centers, and service organizations, children's hospitals in the New York area as well bringing the magic of the theater to those who cannot get to the theater themselves. We are proud of the work we do and delighted with the wonderful working relationship that we have with the theatrical community and grateful to our members and everyone who makes what the wing does possible. We are so grateful to all of you on this panel and indeed grateful 
to the supporters of the American Theatre Wing. So now let's get back to what it is to work in the theatre as a performer. Right now, Ted, would you start this? Oh, indeed. Thank you, Isabel. Um, we've heard some, some, I think, wonderful things about what it's like to be an actor and what, what that world is, is about. I wanted to ask a little bit of... Um, Oh, some stories. And one, the first one I, I want to ask, um, those, for those of you who have seen Contact, it's a wonderful story about a woman in, in a yellow dress and a man who, yes, there's the poster. Um, <laughs> but I heard a wonderful story about the opening night party, and I wanted you to tell the story of you and John Wyden and the opening night party. <laughs> well, obviously this is a show about swing dancing, and I, I warned John Weidman weeks and weeks before opening party that he better be brushing up on his swing dancing steps because we were going to drag him out on the, on the floor. And John Weidman is perhaps the most dance-phobic person I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life, <laughs> even more so than Boyd, perhaps. Um, and uh, he, was, he was petrified, but sure enough, the very last, very last song, they were playing The Party's Over, and John Weidman and I got out and danced the night away on the dance floor. He even dipped me at the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't even know, know that. I have pictures to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his first and last. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, do you have a story or no? <laughs> None that he can tell. Right. Well, actually, I did make me think of the opening night. Uh, one of the dancers, uh, one of the dancers' boyfriend's mother, backstage. Um, <laughs> Opening night, you know, and so it's very celebratory. It would have been a, it would have been a, a, a wonderful evening, and uh, uh, it, the, you know, we were all exhausted and exhilarated as you tend to be on opening nights. And uh, uh, but uh, so this, the the boyfriend's mother came back into the dressing room, and she just she looked at me and she said, "You have the most pathetic face." The only thing you could say in those situations is, thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> she said, oh, I meant it so. And then I saw her afterwards at the party, and she said, well, your hair certainly looks better now. She's <laughs> 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 not your mother. People Thank will you. say anything. Uh, no, it's like they do. They mean you know, when they're third. Like they say anything to you. Oh, yeah. It's it's That's amazing. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 was, I, I, I was working at the Guthrie Theater, and I it was opening night of uh, Our Town. I was playing George, and one of the the supporters of the theater of the Pillsburys, you know, in Minnesota. So George Pillsbury and his wife Sally. <laughs> who I'd met now nine times at all these functions for the Guthrie. Uh, uh, Alan Schneider, uh, late Alan Schneider, uh, had directed, and I saw him at the party, and he goes, boy, boy, come here, come here, come here. And so he goes, I want you to meet George and Sally Pillsbury. He was trying to get away, I could tell. <laughs> so, he, so he's going to, and so, and I went, oh, yes, hi. We, you know, and they go, oh, well, it's really nice to meet you. And I go, okay, they don't remember me, but that's okay. <coughs> and so, so, and I just played George in the, in the show, and they said, so what do you do here? And I went, uh, well, I'm an actor. And they said, oh, well, uh, were you in the show tonight? And I went, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. And they said, so who did you play? And I went, uh, pointing to George, I said, I played George. And they go, <laughs> Oh, no. They couldn't. I guess I missed that. And I went, I said, uh, the one that married Emily? And they went, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So I said, oh. And they said, well, are you in anything else? And we were in rep. Uh, and so I said, well, I'm in The Tempest. And they go, oh, well, we saw that. And I said, so who did you play in that? I said, play Ferdinand. And, they, and so he went, 
<laughs> who needs critic? Yeah, and so, and so I know. Yeah, I, asked, I said, so, and, so, and what does he do? I said, he's the one who <laughs> marries Miranda. <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they <laughs> no, 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 I know, I, and that's what that's what I was thinking. And so, so, uh, and 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 she goes. So Sally goes. Oh, oh, no! Don't you remember? He was the one who was dressed, had this beautiful white costume, and you know. Uh, uh, and uh, she s he said, oh, yes, oh, yes. Remember, he was the one in the white costume. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, well, you were, must have been a lot better in that than you were in this tonight. <laughs> well, apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> I hate popping fresh doves. Oh, <laughs> exactly. Well, it was very nice to have you again. Now, Brian, Brian, you, you were in the Minskoff with the, with the show that had some divas, uh, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> oh. Well, there's a story. There must be some story. Oh, no, uh, not my word. No, no. They're, they're, they, everyone, I did with, I never got to go on with Glenn. Glenn was a hoot. Glenn, Glenn would play tricks on everybody. And um, my favorite story about Glenn is uh, one night before, it was, it was April Fool's Day. And I went up to Glenn where everybody met before the curtain went up. I don't know why. We all just kind of hung out and said hi for the opening number before she had to go up on the house and come down. Um, I said, Glenn, why don't we... Tell them to make an announcement that you're out, George Hearn is out, everybody's out, and then all the whole cast will say over the mic, April Fools. And she's such a prankster, she loved it. So of course, when Glenn went to the PSM and said, <laughs> I want to do this announcement. So <laughs> they announced to the whole audience that at this performance, the role of so-and-so usually performed by, and went through the entire list oh. of all the principals. And you could just hear them. And, and you know, Norma usually played like Glenn, Glenn Close. Every, the whole audience, oh, God! And then the whole cast screamed, April Fools! Mm. It was the funniest thing. <laughs> <laughs> the entire audience screamed, howling laughter, <laughs> applauded, went That's crazy, and it was just a great, great idea. Great idea. Great idea. I'm surprised some of them weren't already out the door. I know. Really. Yeah. 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 My first time That's on as Joe Gillis was opposite Betty, and I was on vacation, and they had to call me to come back, and oh, I was I sick. That. It was a night. I was I was a mess, and um, she showed up to the rehearsal. They had made changes because it was the last time Glenn was. Glenn left, and I went on vacation. It was a week, and then I had to come back. They had made changes in the show for Betty, as well they should, and I had not been there for any of the rehearsals. <laughs> and so we had a little rehearsal. Betty showed up to the rehearsal with a huge bouquet of flowers to give me, and she said, you're going to be great. Don't you worry about a thing. And it went, it went great, except in the performance, I, I, it was my first time on, and, and one of my lines, I said, you, you, you sh the line is, you shouldn't let another writer read your stuff. He may try to steal it. And I said, you should be, you be, shouldn't let another writer read your stuff. He may try to steal it. And she went, abda, 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 I'm not afraid. <laughs> Perfect. And we just looked, and she got like, like smile. And from then on, it was like clear sailing. It was fine. <laughs> and, then at the, and we never got to talk throughout the show until the end of Act One, where um, I come back, she's trying to commit suicide, and I'm on top of her kissing her. And, and then the curtain came, and she just, we both started laughing hysterically. And she's like, I had to, honey. I just had to. I was like, thank you. Because I would have, like, killed myself for the rest of the night. But, you know, she was just great. So those are my two divas. They're not, they're not evil diva stories. They were both great. To me, so, yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. Kristen, do you have any, uh, any stories? <laughs> embarrassing moments on stage or anything? Um, well, I was also at the Guthrie. And I was doing uh, Babes in Arms, and I had several wig changes. 
And I could tell that this intern, really sweet girl, she just wasn't getting the wig on. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. I could feel it sometimes when I would shake my head that it was sort of sliding. But one particular night, um, there's a scene where I'm uh, yelling at my co-star, and I, there's a, another man laying at my feet. And I'm like, I'm just going to go and be with him. He's laying there at my feet. And I said, I'm just going to go and be with him. And the wig flew off, <laughs> and it was laying on his back. <laughs> and I looked up, and the, you know, I'm in my wig cap, the microphone's right here. And my co-star's eyes were this big. And, he's like, and I said, you've got me so mad, I've lost my hair. <laughs> I the wig had left. But what's sad about that is three weeks later, I'm in the VOM. Three weeks later, I'm in the VOM waiting to make an entrance. You know those VOMs? Oh, yes. Boyd, that you come up, and I hear an audience member go, and then she, her wig fell off, and she grabbed her wig and said, I've lost my hair, and she ran off. And I heard snickering when I made my entrance. And I was like, that was three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I can see. They wanted it every night. Yes. <laughs> There's a, a wonderful group of young students here that would like to ask some questions, everyone. And I think that we're going to start with them right now, because I think it's important. They're theater students, and you are people of the theater, so let's hear from them. This question's for everyone. Um, at what point in your life did you realize that theater was the career you wanted to pursue? Well, for me, it wasn't actually until I gave it up. I, I went to college. I was um, always in the honors classes and the accelerated <coughs> programs, and my family was very much encouraging me to go into a more traditional-type career, medicine, law, corporate America, you know, those were the things that to them would signify success. And um, <clears throat> I danced since I was a little girl, but I never really thought that it was something I was going to do for a living. I thought it was just something I loved that I got to do on the side. And uh, I spent my junior year um, abroad in England and <laughs> quit dancing for the year. I thought, okay, that's it, you know, I'm in college, I'm going overseas, it's time to see the world. And, and I did, had a fabulous year. but. Um, also realized that it was something more than a hobby for me, that um, although my family had expectations for me that if I'm really going to be true to myself, that I had to admit that this was something more important than just um, an after-school activity. So I finished my degree. I got a degree in communications, and um, <laughs> I packed up my car and moved to Chicago and said, I'm going to go be a dancer. <laughs> and my family, after they all picked themselves up from the floor, <laughs> have slowly warmed up to the idea. I think when I became a Rockette, that was sort of the turning point for them. And now they're all taking, they're all taking <laughs> credit great. for driving me to dance classes. Now, you know, my uncle, <laughs> my military uncle saying, oh, I was the one who told her she should be a performer. Um, but the thing is, is you, I don't know if, if I really knew it's what I wanted to do until I stopped doing it. Um, I wasn't one of those people who knew from the time I was three. I knew it was something I always loved, but I grew up in a very small town in East Texas. It seemed like there's nobody in my family in show business. There's nobody in my town, really, from show business. And so there's, there weren't any people to follow. There weren't any role models immediately um, around me. And so it, it took me a while to sort of realize it was a possibility. And it wasn't until I sort of gave it up and I realized uh, I can't do without this. Whether, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe I'll make a fool of myself. Maybe I'll fall flat on my face. But it's also a career that you can't wait to do until you're 80 or 90. I mean, I can go be a lawyer or go to med school or go, I can do it at that at any point in my career, but I can't always dance and act and, and sing and do these things. It's something you really have to do while you have the freedom and the youth to do it. And so I just sort of took a deep breath and jumped. 
Thank God. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Next question. Um, this question is especially for Kristen and Brian. Um, was it difficult to deal with being singled out as um, the positive aspect of a show in reviews that weren't generally raves? Mm. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, you have to, as, a, as an actor, you, you really, honestly, you don't really live with the reviews. You don't. It, it's, it's one person's opinion. Unfortunately, millions read it, you know, in the New York Times. It, it is difficult because what they don't take into consideration is the months of work that everyone puts into it and all the talent and, and uh, the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that go into it. Also, with, in our case, um, one thing that all the critics failed to note, and is the, the basic truth of the piece, is that despite what they say, the audiences jump to their feet and at the end of the show and dance. And I think they, the audience doesn't lie. You know, they let you know. So I it is hard, because they are my friends. And um, it, it hurts me that, that, that they were not mentioned. <laughs> in a positive way, but not all of them were bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it, it's, a, it's, it's bittersweet. Basically the same thing. Um, and also, I've been lucky, and a lot of the cast that I've been in uh, were very, very friendly and very close, and they're just love and supportive, you know, and they're, they're happy, and uh, people are still coming to the show, so that's yeah. the ultimate. I remember <laughs> Brooks Atkinson once said, the audience was beside itself with pleasure. And I thought, boy, there's no critic today who says stuff like that. Well, that's yeah. true. It's yeah. an acknowledgment of what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Next question. This question is for the entire panel. I wanted to know what each of you find to be the most rewarding and the most difficult aspect of working in theater. Cosmic question. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> difficult auditioning for me. Or the, or the unpredictability, <laughs> the insecurity of not knowing what the next job is going to be. I mean, hopefully you go from project to project, but it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes you go for long stretches of time mm -hmm. with no work, and you don't know what your income is going to be. And, and, and that's probably, for me, the dif most difficult part, because you can't um, predict what your future is going to be like. You don't have the 9 to 5 job, you know. Right. The best part is being able to work in what you love. Mm -hmm. That's the, mo the most rewarding. For me, at least. Well, yeah, the thing, you know, in, in, um, in our show, I get this kick off the show with no business like show business. Mm -hmm. And to stand out there every night and feel the curtain go up behind me and feel the spotlight on me and it's completely quiet, I started a cappella. Hmm. And it's just, it's the most amazing feeling, night after night after night. And to go out there and do that show with Bernadette and our cast. We're just, we're blessed. Yeah. We have, it's, yeah. a, it's, a really, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to be in a good show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also love showing up to the stage door. Yeah. Walking in mm -hmm. the stage door, knowing, you know, not afterwards when everyone's there and everything, but just going in, mm -hmm. signing in. Saying hello to people. Uh, saying hello. Yeah. Joining your family. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a great feeling. Yeah. Yes. It's true. Hi. <laughs> Some families are better than others. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. My question is for all the panelists. <laughs> I was wondering, how did you feel about your future in the theater when you were our age, 18, 19 years old? Well. <laughs> I, I look back on that time and think how great it was to have naivete. Mm. Um, mm. And I wish sometimes I still had that. Yeah. 
because because <laughs> I, <laughs> I was fearless. Basically, I didn't. I thought that I was going to be successful. I mean, I I knew it was going to be hard because everybody tells you that and all of that sort of thing. But I, I you know came here, started auditioning like the day after I got here, got a job you know relatively quickly. Um, I, you know, no, I think one of the things is when you when you begin to work and you become more known in the business, the expectations are higher and higher and higher every time you walk into the door. So that becomes, for me, more nerve-wracking than when nobody knew who I was and it didn't really matter and I could try or do anything I wanted to. Now it's more of a, now you feel like there's more ex at stake because mm -hmm. you, you feel like you have, to you have to continue to prove. Um, Actually, Marin and I worked together <laughs> yeah. when she was when quite young. When I was young. really young. <laughs> and uh, my agent saw her there, Michael yeah. Bloom. She was in Michigan. And uh, you, you came to town. You had things kind of in hand. Yeah, I had, I mean, I had an town. agent. Had I was agent. lucky. I was lucky. I had yeah. my car. I had an agent. So, um, and I had a good, I had a good, good background of working at this, this we theater. Had this, where we had a theater. There's a, a summer stock theater <laughs> in Michigan, southern Michigan, called The Barn. And uh, it really kind of gives you a flavor of what it's like. It's a 500-seat theater. They do eight shows a week or seven shows a week, depending on how much of a hit stock. it is. And it's, it's oh, tough work, but it's total immersion. And I, I apprenticed. We both apprenticed there at different right. times and both uh, sort mm. of started there. How did you know where to go for an addition? How did you know how to if you first came to New York? Well, because I had met people, I mean, like Tom, and there were people that, uh, that, that would come back that had worked there that were professionals that had already that lived here. And and had worked on Broadway, and so knew you know go to go to New, get backstage, get so that helped. We all we helped each other um, know what to do when we got here. Mm -hmm. So uh, and the process still continues. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. there's people coming from the barn every that, year that yes, come to New York. Yes, still come and get help. It's one of the few theaters that really does that kind of thing anymore. Has yeah. an apprentice program, and resident stock theater. Does that answer? My question is directed to the whole panel. Uh, I was wondering where you think uh, the future of modern theater might be going. Do you believe it might become more commercialized or less commercialized? Oh. <laughs> 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 you got Disney. You got uh, you know um, who's next? Warner Brothers is going to start producing shows. It's becoming more and more corporate. The mm -hmm. the yeah. future of uh, like producing couples like Fran and Gary Weisler. Mm -hmm. They're dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. They're, it's not going to be around for very much longer. Um, it's, it's changing. But at the same time, I mean, it, there's a lot of shows going up. There's a lot of work for actors. Some people would bemoan some of the, the change to corporate structure, but they, they have the money to do a lot of things. Yes, and when you live in a country that doesn't subsidize the arts like most, say, European nations, uh, we really don't, I don't know that there's any other choice. I don't think that the... Mm -hmm. Thank God for Lincoln Center. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly right. Like the not-for-profit not theaters really are uh, as close to uh, you know a kind of subsidized right. theater that we have. Um, it, I guess I, I would say if I had any hope for the theater in the future, is that um, that a balance is either maintained or created right. that keeps. Um, the, there's always room for the commercial theater, there all, and I think there will be. Uh, and I think the corporate money that's coming in and mm -hmm. is, something, is ultimately a good thing because it means that shows will happen, right. uh, and that that uh, I mean, 
I've heard some criticism of like the Disney shows, like Beauty and the Beast and Lion King, saying, "Oh, it's just big commercial products." But, but it puts young people in the audiences. Right. They see theater, and they're great. And they're they're great. Yeah. They're wonderful yeah. shows, and 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 mm -hmm. I I think that's great. Uh, what what we sort of don't have now is audiences your age, and uh, at my age really. You know, regularly going to yeah. the theater. That's a, we have an elderly audience and we have a very young audience, and right. that, yeah. and uh, uh, it, so the big question, in a certain way, is that as uh, people our age and uh, uh, you know, what's going to happen to the years when that's the dominant audience? Right, yes. is, will they be in the theater? Right. I do find it, and I. I'd I do want to believe that it's going to be great and continue because when I moved up originally, it was one of those years where there was nothing practically on Broadway. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I do believe that it's becoming very cost prohibitive yes. for a family to go to the theater. Particularly oh, yeah. Broadway, I mean, yeah. the prices at $100. Uh, I mean, that's a $500 evening yes. to, you know, for exactly. a babysitter and, 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 and become a small meal. Mm -hmm. I remember exactly. I remember when I first moved up, I, I, I had to see Nicholas Nickleby. It was the second time it was done. Right. And the tickets were $100. Mm -hmm. but, uh, granted, it was eight hours of brilliant theater, but um, I. The money I had allotted when I first moved up to, for transportation for maybe a month and a half, mm. I used for that, and I walked everywhere just so I could go see it. And then I found out, like right before I, you know, went to go see the show, the free tickets were up at Equity. Uh, <laughs> bitter. <laughs> <laughs> this is a question for Miss Maisie. I was just wondering what kind of research went into your portrayal of Mother in Ragtime. Um, well, the wonderful thing about Ragtime was that we had an incredible novel in which the show was based that, that Edgar Doctorow wrote. And um, so I had great source material there um, because she's, she's beautifully written. Um, but I think uh, I, I did a lot of research just on women of the time, the Victorian women of the, of the period. And I also just like to create the human being as far as, so I'm, I made up her family, her name, where she came from, who her relatives were, what, you know, because her name was Mother, so of course gave her, ev everyone had a name, all of that sort of, which, and sort of, I wrote journals, I did this for passion too, I wrote, I wrote out things um, that were her life, I like to do that, so that they really are human beings, and, but a lot of it, like I said, a lot of, a lot of the guidelines were in the novel for, for me, uh, for Ragtime. So um, I had I had I had boundaries and I had things that that I needed to keep within <coughs> within the, the guidelines of the show, um, but it was a, a wonderful. It's that's what's it's very fun to create. And I mean I'm actually doing it with Lily now too. I mean I've given her a whole a whole life, even though she's someone else has played her before. Uh, gone at her as if no one's ever. You know I'm the first person that's ever or whatever. I'm originating it for myself and. And giving her a life, and and uh, it's very fun to do. <laughs> we have one more question. Uh, this question's for the whole panel. I was wondering, uh, where where are you from? What's your background, and uh, where did you train? If and what style did you train in of acting? Or who, who hasn't answered this? Because we've been we've touched on it. it. I went to the oh. University of Wisconsin, studied voice, applied voice. I was going to be an opera singer. I thought. 
Until I sang for a general manager of an opera company. <laughs> and he said, well, you got a nice little voice. <laughs> Three or four more years of study, you'll be able to do, you know, third or fourth leads in operas and make 20 grand a year. I said, nah, <laughs> I'm going to New York. <laughs> uh, I, um, I started acting in California uh, at a little place called the Pacific Conservatory of the Performing Arts. Uh, and then from there I went to audition several times, got turned down, uh, was an alternate once, and then finally got accepted to Juilliard. Uh, so I went to Juilliard for, for four years, and that was uh, the emphasis there is, is classical theater, and that's, uh, uh, of which I still get to do occasionally, but I sort of had a sort of jack-of-all-trades <laughs> career, done a, a lot of different things. School of Hard Knocks. <laughs> <laughs> one more, quick. Question? Question, one more question. No? Oh. oh, yeah, I thought you had another question. I, I don't think we have time oh, for another okay. question. Oh. I have one that I'd like to go around very quickly, uh, but it has to be very quickly. Okay. How did you get your first agent? Uh, they saw me at Paper Mill Playhouse, and uh, I got a meeting. How do you get an agent? Um, I worked at a theater here in the city that's no longer, and I wish we could have it back, called Equity Library Theater. Yeah, mm -hmm. Because it was a great showcase for, for new people come, who have just moved up to New York, and that's how I got my first agent. I was in a show. I happened just to actually go to a birthday party, <coughs> and I had just been cast. There happened to be the casting director who had just cast me in Dream, and the agent was there also, and the casting director recommended me to the agent, and he called me, and uh, we set up a meeting. Thank you so much. I'm going to have to answer, have these questions answered afterwards. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. right now, I have to say this is the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre, coming to you from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. And this seminar has been on the performance, and it has been extremely good, wonderfully interesting, and marvelously talented people. Thank you very, very much for sharing.